first of all, a few thoughts on how these talks or lectures came to be written. Before a concert begins, there is a period when the musicians tune their instruments. This is particularly so when Indian musicians gather to play. What follows in this talk is a sort of tuning up on my behalf, for to plunge headlong into the Commedia would be a too heady task. First, on my own behalf of tuning up, I need to ask myself how I came to know Dante and how his thought has become so much part of my own way through life. Relationship demands that we stand before the man we address. The work in which he takes his stand and our response to that work. I owe my initial love for Dante because of excellent teachers. Studying the set texts for A-level Italian was a revelation. And in the 50s, A-level Italian, unlike the present, set fundamental texts to be studied. University studies continued my love for Italian literature. However, it became only too easy to neglect matters once understood. And like Dante, I became lost in the philosophies of the day. In time, recognizing through grace that like the poet, I too had become lost in a dark wood of the passions, Dante once again became a guide. And what Dante terms il ben dell'intelletto, the good of the intellect, gradually and painfully came back to me. And the thought of mentors like Dante and Martin Buber stirred within and the real journey through life began once more. And in this I discovered that the structure of the Commedia provided an uncanny map of the terrain that I was moving through. This background gradually led me to read Dante's great poem in translation with art students in 1968, during lunch hour breaks. I had come to realise that Dante offered a cosmology and an understanding of life that could be of great benefit to the young people as they struggled with the breakdown of traditional values during the 60s. The mood of the times was immoral and promiscuous, and the insights of the past were considered no longer relevant by a generation of culturally illiterate teachers who should have known better. All that was left for many was an ever-increasing perplexity and self-indulgence that led to cynicism and a squandering of the remnants of an inherited wisdom. I was witness to young lives being shipwrecked, abortion and suicide where one extreme, drink and drugs were the other. It was a time of what Pasolini calls in one of his novels, I vinti della vita, the overwhelmed by life. Or, I can put it another way, or how my dear friend Cecil Collins put it, that if you, if you indulge, overindulge in, in, the, in the senses, then in the end you become sterile in a spiritual sense. In this turmoil arose the vogue for Eastern religions, Sufism, meditation, Buddhism, Jungian, Jungian psychology, Gnosticisms of all sorts and varieties, macrobiotic 
diets and exploration into anything that seemed to give a hint of a purpose. Maybe even a slight kick towards the true goal. Gurus of dubious intentions, false prophets and those who for the most part were mere charlatans and quacks were often considered heroes of the day. Many books were published, most were rubbish. However, among well-stocked shelves, one could still discover the odd publication of a classic or a rare text. Our little Dante group read Dorothy Sayers' translation of the Commedia from beginning to the end. Descending into hell during the autumn, just as we are, clambering up Mount Purgatory during the spring, as we shall do, and rising to paradise over the summer term. I have now lost count of how many times over the years the enterprise was undertaken. However, the journey through the three worlds, though known since my undergraduate days, was and always has been continually fresh and challenging. More recently, I had the privilege to read the Commedia twice with students at the Temenos Academy in London. As a result of the second reading, Dr. Anne Shukman asked me to give a series of lectures on Dante's great work at the St. Theosavia Centre for the Study of Christian Spirituality in Oxford. In my audience, were to be people who had known T.S. Eliot, Dorothy Sayers, and Charles Williams, three of my Dante mentors. I knew I had a great responsibility ahead of me. Some time ago, I had already given four lectures on the Commedia when the Temenos Academy first opened its doors. I had not been pleased with the results. Nothing can replace reading the poem verse by verse, canto by canto. Gradually, a rich panorama builds up in the minds of the group. Dante's imaginative and intellectual world takes over, drawing the readers into their own various journeys. Dr. Schuchman had truly set me a mammoth task. Somehow I would have to focus years of reading into a concentrated form fit for lectures. It would be too easy to go on off on fascinating tangents. Much would have to be left out and it took me time to become convinced of my task. I knew I had to concentrate on the poet's teaching for his pilgrim readers not to be tempted to deviate from my task in order to satisfy the academic or the merely curious. Dante had helped my students over many years to understand something of the West's tradition and how it stood up to, indeed matched, anything imported from the Oriental worlds. And as I said well, just before I started, the answer is not really found in Shangri-La, for what we have been looking for has been safely under our own beds all the time. The difference between previous readings and seminars and the challenge granted me by Dr. Schuchman's invitation was that I would be communicating with Christians for the first time in my life. And this both gave me a freedom, yet a responsibility never known. I was apprehensive, and I knew from the start that my guardian angel would have to work overtime. So I hope that which follows will be of benefit to a wider audience.
The lectures are meant to be as a vademecum for someone who sets to out for the first time to read the Commedia. They are meant also to be read, read along with a commentary such as Dorothy Sayers or Charles Singleton's. That is one that is grounded in an understanding of the Christian tradition. And just an aside, Charles Singleton, who I believe is dead now, he, he was a, a Roman Catholic, and Dorothy Sayers, who, alas, who's no longer with us, um, was a very devout Anglican. Thinking back to my involvement with the educational establishments promoted by, in quotation marks, the system, I agree totally with Thomas Traherne, the 17th century Anglican divine, that such places do not teach happiness, or to use Traherne's word, felicity. If anything, they confuse, depress, alienate, even take delight in destroying the maturing of young souls. Traherne writes of his university days at Oxford. There was never a tutor that did professedly teach felicity, though that be the mistress of all other sciences. Nor did any of us study these things but as aliena, which we ought to have studied as our own enjoyments. We studied to inform our knowledge, but knew not for what end we so studied. And for the lack of aiming at a certain end, we erred in the manner. Howbeit, there we received all those seeds of knowledge that were afterwards improved, and our souls were awakened to a discerning of their faculties and the exercise of their powers. You can say that Dante wrote his Divine Comedy in order to teach felicity, to teach happiness which is the mistress of all the other sciences. And Dante presumes also that, that his attentive reader has not made the fundamental error of separating theology from spirituality. His own audiences would have brought much to their reading or listening, because it was often read aloud to, to groups, due to the art of memory as practised in those days. For example, it would have been commonplace for a person to have known by memory the whole of the Psalter, the Song of Songs, and many other substantial passages from the Scriptures. So, in the Divine Comedy, a quotation here or there is like a trigger to trigger off a whole realm of ideas through this known, learnt uh, knowledge of, uh, of scriptural readings in the minds of his readers. This will come very clear when we get to the top of Purgatorio. Furthermore, Dante was of a generation that believed that to pray aright implies theologically to think aright. The two are interrelated. Unlike modern times, when degrees in theology may be taken, which give little or no attention whatsoever to spirituality. And spirituality, I believe, may also be taken as a separate study for study. Now, you and I must surely realise that spirituality may not be studied on a merely academic level. It has to be lived. It cannot be known through study alone. Dante's commitment to the pilgrim way 
is uncompromising. That is why most readers never get farther than reading The Inferno, with its cinematographic depictions. The Paradiso for men is like a far-off place, hard to appreciate, arid, irrelevant. I have heard Italian professors talk for over an hour on just the philological significance of a verse or a line. At the end of their admirable discourse, however, I was none the wiser as to Dante's spiritual insights or meanings. Frequent readings have convinced me that when reading the Commedia, it is important to rewrite the poem in one's own mind according to one's own experience of the way. Dante's vast volume of Who's Who may be substituted by our own. It is fascinating to learn the story of the stories that lie behind his characters, but do they not remind you of persons of our own times? After all, we are all moving through our own hells, purgatories and intimations of paradise. Dante's doctrine is a, that's quotation marks, is a framework to help integrate our own life according to the ancient psychology of the soul. It is hoped that it will soon be understood to be far more satisfactory than theories of many moderns before, because it reflects the wisdom and the tradition of the old sanctioned wisdom over generations and generations. Now the little sequence uh, that I've called orthodoxy, I mean that in the Christian sense, the Western tradition and Dante. Some of you may not find this um, so relevant, but I think it has to be said. Most Christians will approach the Commedia from their own Western tradition. In the main, they would be unfamiliar with the idea that there is also the Eastern Christian tradition, generally known as orthodoxy. Icons may be as far as their appreciation goes to this other vital strand in the Christian story. On the other hand, for a strict orthodox, Dante may cause doctrinal problems, and much of what he says, or finds he reads, may be cast in an unfamiliar mode of thought. Orthodox stand convinced that the West's insertion of the so-called philoque clause in the Nicene Creed, with its misunderstanding of the procession of the Holy Spirit, has been over the centuries the main cause of the West's fate, the West's fate with all its churches, divisions and sects. Orthodox understand this theological error as the cause of the rise of individualism in the West, from investing infallibility in one person to the humanism of the Renaissance, which placed man at the centre of all things, to the problems of modern times. It also understands the clause, that is the philoque clause, together with the West's emphasis on Augustinian theology as encouraging the shift in the West from the teaching of the Church Fathers, which is grounded in the intellect and the heart, to an ever-increasing emotional and affective attitude to life. This resulted in a conflict between our feelings and our rational faculties. By the time of Anselm in the 11th century 
and Bernard of Clairvaux in the 12th century, it is possible to trace a wedge being driven between the heart and the head, resulting in a difference of emphasis in spirituality, which we could say culminates in the Spanish mystics of the 16th century. The Anglican 17th century divines, in many ways, are much closer to orthodoxy than their Roman Catholic counterparts. Andrews, Herbert, Traherne, Ken, for example, breathe a spirituality which orthodox may warm to and gain understanding in what we may describe as the English tradition. But unfortunately, orthodoxy may become ghetto-like at times and cut itself off from the West. Such an attitude isolates people through a lack of intention to attempt to understand that which is positive in the West. This is especially so in the field of the arts. It is too easy to dismiss the arts as having involved from the West emphasis on individualism, however true this may be at times. You and I cannot cut ourselves off from Dante or Shakespeare, Traherne or T.S. Eliot, Botticelli or Blake, Bach or Mozart, Dickens or Scott, Handel or Elgar, on the grounds that they are the product of the West and its ways. Such an attitude is intellectual folly. Most of us will find that our lives have been influenced by the West, often positively, sometimes negatively. We live in times when we must earnestly strive to understand not only Christianity, but the other religions of the world. Furthermore, we cannot ignore the advent of the modern world with its apocalyptic dimensions, which have come very strongly upon us in these last few days. To strive to understand Dante is to make the effort to understand, to understand much of the good that is here in the West. Many of us may not agree with his political views, likewise certain aspects of his medieval theology, or his confidence in Rome as being the focal point for church organisation. When reading the Commedia, we cannot fail but stumble across an understanding of the ancient psychology of the soul, together with a body of knowledge that may be considered as a corpus of the Christian teaching or gnosis. This goes a long way in making sense of much that has surfaced since the 60s. Many will be surprised to learn of Dante's profound understanding of the transfiguration, the mystical body, the Beatitudes, the significance of the martyrs, and they will discover a spiritual world which is far closer to the orthodox world of St. Gregory Palamas or St. Nicholas Cabasilas than the academic limitations of a Balaam of Calabria and the light. They would be surprised to learn that Dante predates these two great saints of the Eastern Church by a generation. It is, indeed, it is possible to say that these two saints helped to open much of Dante's world in di directions that he would have welcomed. Take, for example, his understanding of the mystical body. Once through St. Peter's Gate, there is for Dante an ever-increasing sense of agape, love, and courtesy. 
the mutual love that binds all the souls in one is their love for Christ. A reader may at first ask why Dante does not speak of the sacraments. The answer is simple. In the life after death, there are no longer any sacraments. They have been realised. How then do we consider all the souls of the saved with whom Dante converses? I am reminded of St. Nicholas Casabasilas when he writes, if one could see the Church of Christ insofar as she is united to him and shares in his sacred body, one would see nothing other than the body of the Lord. So, in paradise, when Dante see, meets the saints and other, pe other souls that he meets, he's actually seeing <coughs> aspects of, of, the, of the divine mystery. And that, that is a key for us in this room and how we relate to one another. We are part of that mystery. Dante's wonderful family of souls with, with whom he converses is the sacred body, like small cells flowing into a whole integrated body. Again, one may ask, how are all these souls fed, sustained? The answer is, of course, through the overflowing blessedness of the Saviour's heart. This communication of life and intimacy is the very essence, in our world, of the Eucharistic mysteries. And in Paradise, it flows from the heart itself. Well, there's no altar in John's vision of paradise. There is but the blood of the Lamb, that, that which feeds us. And so one learns to read Dante as he wished, on many levels at once. The literal tale is about the afterlife, but what the poet says concerns us here and now in our mortality and the promise of life eternal to come. The emphasis given to by Cabasilas to our need to meditate and constantly remember with gratitude God's infinite compassion and love and how through this discipline we are led gradually to live in the spirit of the Beatitudes also casts, as we see, we will see, light on Dante's deeper meaning of the cornices of purgatory. In what follows, I have tempted to travel with the poet rather to sta than stand aside and criticize or to enter into theological disputes. <clears throat> the next little section is called Poetic Theology and St. Augustine of Hippo. In the context of Western literature, Dante was the originator of poetic expression that embraces theological insight. His work is not poetic theology in the sense that we find it in the great hymns of St. Ephraim the Syrian or the poems of St. Gregory Nazianzen. Dante's work <coughs> has inherited the feel of the author autobiographical and the psychological that is to be found in the writings of his own mentor, St. Augustine, the father of the Western Church, the father which the West came to adulate over all the other fathers. For example, there's a famous passage <coughs> in the writings of Augustine, where he has a vision which he shares with his mo mother, St. Monica, at their home at Ostia. And it may be described as the locus classicus of Dante's own, with its emphasis on sh sharing, vision and assent. Like Augustine, 
the poet's vision involves the touching of eternal wisdom and the discovery that God has made us for himself and it, it is in his will that we discover our peace. Augustine's emphasis on the discovery of the mystery of the Holy Trinity within our souls was also fundamental to Dante. Not only does the terza rima chosen to express his great poem celebrate the Trinity at every verse, every line, but also Augustine's concept that our memory, understanding and will reflect the Trinity within ourselves is essential to understanding the poem. Memory for Augustine and Dante is the whole mind, potentially the whole spiritual world. For to know anything is to hold it in the memory. Dante's knowledge was encyclopedic, embracing the classical past and the intellectual world of the Middle Ages. All this he wishes to understand theologically and spiritually through his experience of life. And this involved every ounce of his will, as he knew success, failure, exile, poverty, humiliation. And as he says, as he had to climb the stairs of another to take his rest and eat the bread of charity. Exile was very, very bitter to a proud man like Dante. <clears throat> a few notes now on Dante. As I said, this is just tuning up. A few notes on Dante's cosmology. Dante may be easily misunderstood due to his cosmology being based on the Ptolemaic universe. The discarded image as it was once described by C.S. Lewis in a, one of his famous books. The cosmology there in the is there in the poem for the ordering of his thoughts. It is like a scaffolding. Unlike modern man, it is not as if he searches for his dignity in space, <coughs> to echo a thought of Pascal. Dante has what modern man has not, and that is an embracing framework for thought that enables him to affirm his imagery for the power of his intellect and imagination. What we have is a complex whole, not fragments of an experience in the existentialist sense. The discarded image is the shell concealing the kernel of his love for Beatrice and the mystery of his Lord God. The best way to approach the cosmology or cosmological structure is simply to follow the diagrams step by step as they are set out in Dor Dorothy Sayers' um, Penguin books. These uh, diagrams are incomparable and gradually as we follow the poet on his journey we realize, we realize that the cosmology is similar to a Buddhist or Hindu mandala that this is a symbolic structure that has to be read for the integration of the soul to a true centre. For Dante, this is, in his will, is our peace. That's the centre of his mandala, as it were. And the theme of our own free will, in response to that, is the, at the core of his great poem. 
For example, if one takes the hundred cantos of the whole work and halves them, then we find ourselves in the Purgatorio and in the cantos that deal with Virgil's discourse of free will. So the mystery of our free will is the, 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 at the heart of the Commedia. In the Paradiso we are confronted with the planets of the so-called discarded image. But the reader need not feel alienated once it is realized that Dante is describing modes or degrees of knowledge and understanding gained through contemplation that reintegrate the soul back to its true center. So, prayer, meditation, contemplation are also keys to understanding the Commedia especially the Paradiso. In order to read Dante right, we need to learn how to think through images and, simple, and symbols, as did our forefathers of old. Images are, are understood by the poet, are not flickering, endless procession of images that we see on screens today. He would say that such are akin to the shadows projected on the walls of the cave described by Plato, which the prisoners believe and take as reality. The Commedia's images and symbols are not out there on a wall or on a screen. They are within us. They are not idols, but gifts for transformation from a bug-like existence to a quiet contemplative centre, which may be associated, say, with the chrysalis, from which will eventually emerge the beautiful butterfly-like soul in all its freedom of ascent. The significance of Dante's cosmology ever unfolds as we progress with him on his journey. Another little heading. Why not a tragedy rather than a comedy? Dante called his great poem La Commedia. Succeeding generations have added, added the adjective divine. After struggling through hell, and I can't get out of hell quick enough, I don't know how you will feel when you come to it, most like might think tragedy would be more appropriate than comedy. Though some of the antics of the devils amounts to pure absurdity and, com and comedy, commedia, dell'arte. In a letter to survive the ravages of time, Dante explains his use of comedy or commedia in a rather amusing way. He says that the word is derived from two ancient Greek words, one meaning a village and another meaning a song. A comedy is therefore a village song, he says, a manner of expression to hold our intention with bold imagery and local chit-chat, little scandal here and there to spice the peace. Besides theology and philosophy, such are indeed the ingredients of this poem. He then goes on to write that to have used the word tragedy would have been wrong, for his poem does not end with defeat, but with victory. He admits that his poem has a tragic beginning, but eventually all's well that ends well. He then goes on to say that in order to emphasize the village song quality of his poem, he has written it in the vernacular of Tuscany, not in learned Italian. 
it is in a language that we may all understand. And the fact that he wrote his Divine Comedy in it, Tuscan, which has become Italian, that Dante is really at the heart and root of modern Italian. In fact, you, if I pick up Chaucer, I have a terrible uh, time trying to understand him. But Dante was before Chaucer. I can pick it up with my knowledge of Italian and read it quite happily. The Commedia is a tight, as a title, has also the ring of the stage, a play, actors, sometimes tragic, sometimes comic, sometimes even pastoral. It has a sense of the world, its bustle, a life through which we have to move during the days of our mortality. The Commedia is the story of our life as we follow our destiny and create our fate out of the words, thoughts and deeds of our earthly existence. Our days seem brief, like passing smoke, the cut grass on the field, the leaf falling from the tree. The temptation is to live as if every day was an eternity. Quant'è bella giovinezza che si fugge tuttavia. Chi vuole essere lieto, sia di domani non c'è certezza. So wrote Lorenzo de' Medici. Where's the translate? Oh, it's over here, sorry. Uh, how lovely is youth that flies ever by. Let him be glad, whosoever will be. There's no certainty in tomorrow. Caught in the turmoil of life, we are fortunate to reach three score years and ten. As we increase in years, we note all too often to our horror how our soul attracts like a magnet fields and patterns of our own commedia that we have acted and are in the process of acting out. Our life is indeed the writing of a book that St. John in his Apocalypse says will be opened and known at the last day. Then, bring this gradually to an end, I've got a few thoughts on Dante's life, just a brief outline. For readers who are unfamiliar with Dante, a brief outline of his life may serve to help focus the man in his times. Dante was born 39 years after the death of St. Francis of Assisi. I find that a very important fact for understanding him. He owed much to the Franciscans who educated him and influenced him with their spirituality. It is said that like his friend, the painter Giotto, he too was a Franciscan tertiary, that is, a member of a lay order living under a rule of life. It is clear that he was also influenced by other religious orders, for example, the Cistercians, the Dominicans, particularly the Dominicans because of St. Thomas Aquinas, and the Benedictines. He was sincere, and throughout his life he strove to understand the meaning and purpose of his faith. The political tensions of the times were fought out between the Guelphs, the party of the lesser nobility and artisans, and the Ghibellines, the party of the feudal aristocrats. The Guelphs were for the Pope as supreme head in matters religious and political, whereas the, whereas the Ghibellines were for the dividing line between matters religious and political. 
The strife between the two parties caused petty squabbles and wars throughout Tuscany and Lombardy. Italy was far from being a united kingdom. The Papal State <coughs> sliced Italy in two. The Kingdom of Sicily to the Norman King, Kingdom of Sicily to the south and the squabbling city-states to the north from approximately Siena to Milan. And the church at that time was divided between Rome and Avignon. It had two popes. And Dante yearned for a strong and wise Holy Roman Emperor to come to Italy and reform the peninsula and make it into one nation. It is therefore not surprising that Dante became the hero of all Italians in the 19th century who strove to rid themselves of the Austrian denom uh, do domination in the north and the papal states in the south. It is a curious fact that Italian state and Masonic regalia owes much to the imagery and symbolism of the Commedia. The Italian flag, for example, <coughs> consists of the colours with which Beatrice appears towards the end of the Purgatorio. And the Medal of Knighthood of the Italian state consists, symbolically, of the combination of the imagery of the heaven of martyrs, that is Mars, with the heaven of the rulers, that is Jupiter. And the father of Dante Gabriele Rossetti, Gabriele Rossetti's writings on the, the Commedia contributed much to the inner world of the Italian Risorgimento. And it was not for nothing that his son, Dante Gabriele, reacted against his father's inter interpretation, bringing about, to a greater extent, the, the pre-Raphaelite movement. And likewise, his daughter, Maria Francesca, became an Anglican nun and also wrote a lovely little book on Dante, um, which called The Shadow, uh, the, the Shadow of Dante, and in it, there are, there are some wonderful diagrams, which I think um, um, go very well along with, with Dorothy Sayers' uh, diagrams. You can also find that book flo floating around in second-hand bookshops. In an age that took the zodiac and, uh, and astrology seriously, Dante tells us that he was born under the sign of Gemini, and therefore he was born in Florence sometime between May and June, in 1265. His mother died when he was young. His father, who he, avo he avoids mentioning in his writing, though he seems to have had a reasonably happy childhood, remarried and had nine children. Clearly he had a good education in the Franciscan schools. We know also that he studied rhetoric with the poet Brunetto Latini, whose soul was found by his ex-student in hell, as we shall see. And the young Dante taught himself, he tells us that he taught himself the art of writing verse. He developed a friendship, the first of my friends, with the poet Guido Calvacanti, whose soul he finds in purgatory, whilst that of his father he meets in hell. Dante and Calvacanti were part of a group of poets under the influence of the Bolognese poet Guido Guinizelli, who wrote in the sweet new style, Il Dolce Stil Nuovo. Dante Gabriel Rossetti translated many of the poems of the school, which was a development of the troubadour tradition, emphasizing that love seeks to dwell in the heart, a heart that is virtuous, gentle and noble. The poet's beloved was understood to participate in the nature of the divinity because she appeared to the poet as an angel. 
and the aim of the poetic life was considered by the school to be the bringing to perfection of this experience, which, in Dante's case, became increasingly visionary. Beatrice, or Bice as her nickname was, Beatrice Portinari, later married to Simone de Bardi, when both were, that is Dante and herself, were about the age of nine, and became, in the poet's own words, the nobile donna della mia mente, the noble lady of his mind. It was an overpowering experience that Dante sought to clarify in his mind. He, didn't, he certainly did not write it off, as we would be told today, oh, it's calf love, you fool, grow up. From this initial experience, his love developed into a philosophical and later a theological vision, bringing the last verses of the Paradiso to a conclusion only shortly before his death. Beatrice died as a young bride on the 8th of June, 1290. She became after death for Dante, the bearer of blessings, and he was never to forget her and the love that she had invoked in his whole being. Before his death, his father arranged that Dante should marry Gemma di Matteo Donati, who bore him two sons, Pietro and Jacopo, and two daughters, one whose name was Beatrice, and she became a nun. And Charles Williams, in his wonderful book, The Figure of Beatrice, acutely observed there is probably more of Gemma in the formation of the mature figure of Beatrice than is generally recognised, and that it is a superficial judgment to say that his marriage and family do not influence him. I totally agree with that, knowing what I do reading the, the writings of, of, his, of his son um, Jacobo, it's quite clear that he was a very good father. We know that besides being a poet, Dante was a fine calligrapher and a musician. The early poems were verses to be sung, and there's a profound understanding, as we shall see, of the nature of music in the Commedia, an understanding that comes to a grand climax in the Paradiso. He confesses that after Beatrice's death, he lost his clear vision and became caught up with philosophical speculation. In fact, um, philosophy became the mystery of his mind, he says. He read Cicero and Boethius. Through the influence of the Dominicans, he read Aristotle with care and had a very firm grasp of the scholastic manner of argument of his day. This fact has unfortunately tended to see Dante as an Aristotelian and lost in the medieval world image. However, the more the Commedia is studied and understood, the more it is seen to be within the Platonic tradition as refocused by the early Christians. It should be remembered that the corpus of Plato's texts only became available to the West after the fall of Byzantium in 1453, and then through the translations of um, Marsilio Ficino. Dante's own main Platonic text was the Timaeus, A fair description of Dante's mature philosophical outlook is that he eventually reconciled Aristotle with Plato, an ideal associated later on with the Renaissance philosophers, in particular with Pico della Mirandola. And it is an ideal expressed in Raphael's fresco, The School of Athens in the Vatican, where Plato points to the heavenly worlds and Aristotle 
points to our world. In fact, there's an inter if you think it's an intersection of a cross between the two. The difference between the Renaissance philosophers and Dante is that he did not attempt in any way whatsoever to construct a rival mythological synthesis of pagan religions with Christianity, as did Ficino. He worked through the oral tradition, which drew on writers such as Dionysius the Areopagite, and which considered the advent of Christ as fulfilling, not destroying. His grasp of classicism was natural and not forced. It was the past of Italy, just as the tales, myths, and literature of the Celts and the Anglo-Saxons are ours. This poetic, philosophical, and spiritual life was led alongside a full active public life. For example, he fought in 1289 in the Battle of Campaldino, one of the many intercity states squabbles which sapped Italy of its strength. <clears throat> and the year 1300 is usually taken as the year in which Dante received his particular enlightenment or revelation. I quote from the very end of the um, Vita Nuova. Excuse me. <clears throat> he writes right at the end of the Vita Nuova, the new life. <clears throat> it is given to me to behold, it was given to me to behold a very wonderful vision, wherein I saw things which determined me that I would say nothing further of this blessed one, Beatrice, until such time as I could discourse more worthily concerning her. Wherefore, if it be his pleasure, for whom is the life of all things, that my life continues within me a few years, it is my hope that I shall write concerning her, that hath not been written of any woman, after which it may seem good to him who is the master of grace that my spirit should go hence to behold the glory of its lady, to wit of that blessed Beatrice who now gazeth continually on his countenance, quies per omnia secula benedictus laus Deo. 1300 was the year when Dante served for two months as one of the six priors of Florence. Though at that time at Guelph, he had never concealed his opposition to the political greed of the papacy. Mafia-like manoeuvres had sent him as one of the three delegates from the Florentine commune to the Vatican. He was detained there um, in Rome after the first meeting. There had been a change in the seat of power in Florence and he was promptly exiled. It was the bitterness of this experience which rather like the grit within the oyster forming the pearl drew out of him his masterpiece. His tears and wounds became his creativity and worship. Strange are the ways of God with man. Out of defeat may come resurrection. Dante was never to return to his beloved Florence. He took refuge in the north with the Scala family of Verona, becoming a Ghibelline in outlook. His patron died in 1304 and he travelled to Bologna and became associated possibly with the city's university there. It is believed that he travelled throughout the peninsula to France and the Low Countries, though it is impossible to be clear as to his precise movements. There is also a tradition that he made the pilgrimage across the Pyrenees and across the north of Spain to Campostella. In 1310, the Emperor Henry VII crossed the Alps with the intention of reuniting the church, that is the division between Avignon and Rome, and was 
restoring some sort of order amongst the warring city-states of Italy. Dante saw the young emperor as the fulfilment of his hopes and prophecies as a saviour to a divided church and nation. But in 1313, the emperor suddenly died at Siena. <clears throat> so did Dante's hope of returning to his beloved Florence. Again he took refuge with the Scala family of Verona and set great hopes on the Ghibelline League and in particular his new patron, Can Grande della Scala. Eventually, at last appreciated for his political gifts, Guido Novella da Polenta of Ravenna gave him asylum. The city was to become his home, where we are told he lived with his family, frugally but happily, until his death on the 13th or 14th of September, 1321. And I added just a few lines, which I hope you allow me to read. Because it suddenly struck me, when we pick up Dante, we see the printed world. And printing hadn't been invented in Dante's time. Everything was written calligraphically. So these few thoughts are on Dante, the calligrapher poet. Dante was a respected calligrapher. His original manuscript of the Commedia is lost, and the text we know, as we know it today has been established over the years from copies made from other hands. For Dante, the calligrapher, the writing out of a poem must have had profound significance. The initiated calligrapher knows that the formation of letters, in the formation of letters, there is represented and invoked the Trinity, the soul, and the earth. The formation of letters is a meditation in itself. This is clear when the capital letters are carefully looked at. With an eye and its downward stroke, what is above is united with what is below. The very sound of the letter is profoundly evocative. You only have to hear an Italian child running across a field shouting repeatedly, Io, 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 to know that what I means, and oh, a circle is a universal symbol. <clears throat> a clearly implies the beginning, the ancient of days, creating with his compasses and the little line joining down um, and the little line joining the downward thrusts of the two arms. B well, I should do it that way around, shouldn't I for you? Um, contains all the letters that will flow afterwards. And if you look at the illuminated manuscripts, B is a like Beatus via or Benedictus is one of the most uh, ornamented of all the letters of the alphabet. The downwards line and the two joining lines forming the letter and joining at the centre in the mystery of the soul, and so on. All the alphabet letters may be understood as profound symbols. So the very letters and their sounds which make up the words we speak are sacred if we understand them aright. This is why words have power when correctly used. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The opening sentence of St. John's Gospel. The words, the translation is Tyndale's and the authorised version. And it's totally faithful to the Greek. And thus the power of the words of Scripture unforgettably enters into our mind. Likewise, we may forget, how may we forget the opening words of the, of the Commedia? Nel mezzo del cammin di nostra vita, 
mi ritrovai per selva oscura che la dritta via era smarita. Note, if you write it out, how faithful Dante is to the significance of the dance of letters that he uses to make up his words with memorable power. For from the start, the divinity, the soul, and the earth are invoked. What may we conclude from this? True prose to have power must be married to poetry. True prose must invoke the divinity, the soul, and the earth. And without such, we are left with banality. Hence the poverty of those dreaded so-called ecclesiastical modern translations and liturgies that fall like flat, like a plop on the soul. Dante's Commedia, when read aloud, speaks with power. His whole complex world, invoked through the verses of every letter, word, sentence and concept, relentlessly addresses the divinity, the soul, the earth. He even hammers this further into the mind of his reader, of his poem, by using the terzo rima, the symbol of the most holy trinity, the mystery of all relationship, is at the heart of his creative poetic genius. Thank you very much. I hope that wasn't too long, but that's the sort of length you're going to get, I'm afraid. And that was simply a tuning up. It gets worse, I assure you, as we go along. <laughs> Have you turned it off? Oh. <laughs> Please, <laughs> you better you better censor that bit at the end. <laughs>